nominations are now open for the 2017 Bioceuticals Integrative Medicine Awards, the Beamers. As healthcare practitioners, we care for our patients and while our therapies can have a major impact on them, there are few opportunities for us to celebrate our success stories as a profession. Now is the time to have your contribution to integrative healthcare recognised. There are many different categories and as usual, great prizes to be won. For more information, go to the Education tab at bioceuticals.com.au. FX Medicine and I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook. Joining me on the line again today is Beth Bundy, who's a qualified naturopath of over 17 years, specialising in integrative and functional medicine. She worked previously as technical consultant with PathLab, one of Australia's original functional pathology companies, and is currently training health practitioners nationally as clinical consultant at Nutropath Integrative Pathology Services where she's in high demand as an engaging, informative speaker. She also works as functional medicine practitioner in a busy and highly successful integrative medical practice. Welcome back to Ethics Medicine, Beth, how are you? I'm very well, thank you, Andrew. Now, today we're going to be talking about just a, a short snippet, I guess, of functional pathology for children. Yes. So, you know, notwithstanding that, you know, kids are patients as well, but I guess the, the first area is that it, it's, it's much harder to sort of ascertain exactly what's wrong in a child because they can't normally express with eloquence what's going on in their bodies. Yes, well, they usually have a sore tummy, which could mean they've got a sore head or a sore toe or mm. something else. So, yes, and obviously it will depend on the age of the child too. Ah. And, you know, because obviously the smaller the child, the harder it is, the older they get they can be a little bit more explanatory and so then it's a little bit easier to decide which way you're going to go. Mm. So what are the main conditions that you see um, practitioners wanting to test for in children? Well, the big one is definitely gut pathology. So, you know, the kitty might um, or the mother will explain that the child got a lot of bloating or perhaps some constipation or perhaps some loose stools, or um, I had one recently that had a lot of yellow stools. She was worried about the yellow stools. A failure to thrive um, or, or malnourishment. So the kitty's small on the, um, gosh, my kids are much bigger now. I can't remember on the um, maternal health scale. You know, they have that scale about if the kid's um, within the percentile oh, yeah. or if they're comparing the kid to the other kids at school, you know, the kid's a bit little, or they're malnourished, um, you know, the kids who only eat Vegemite sandwiches and French fries, though at least the kids are getting some B vitamins out of the Vegemite, so for that we should be grateful. <laughs> yeah, and a bucket load of soda. Yay, Vegemite, <laughs> says the Aussie. Um, uh, also, another big one is... Uh, Food sensitivities or suspected food oh, sensitivities, right. especially with things uh, with skin conditions. So, you know, we'll have a lot of kids that uh, may have eczema or dermatitis, 
those sorts of things, or rhinitis, um, sort of respiratory, upper respiratory issues. Um, so things like the an IgG or IgA can be handy in this instance, especially if it's you know related to gut or respiratory conditions. And then we have, I would say, the third one that of the big three would probably be mood and behaviour. Ah. So either learning disorders or behaviour um, issues, um, maybe um, anxiety, perhaps autism. Uh, though some kids aren't um, diagnosed as early as one would like. Um, so they would probably be the main three that I would think. And then, of course, there's other conditions that come up along the way. But generally, for smaller kids, um, I would say gut, and that includes food, mm. skin, and um, behaviour. I think we have to make the salient point to our listeners that any child with, you know, an upset tummy um, who has bloating, constipation or diarrhoea, and particularly if there's other symptoms of, of, you know, poor arousal, if you like, and things like that, that they should always be checked medically to exclude sinister causes for that sort of issue. Um, but I think it's very interesting about the the food allergies. Um I've got to ask about that. You know, this constantly raises its head about cross-reactivity. So can you comment on that? What's the issue? What's the real issue with cross-reactivity and how sensitive are these and specific are these tests for allergies? Right. Well, cross-reactivity can be that if the patient is, say, have heightened uh, sensitivity towards a particular food item, then the proteins in that food can be similar or like another food. So they could be reacting to, say, wheat, but they're also reacting to corn and kiwi fruit. Right. So I can't remember off the top of my head all the related yeah. um, families. Uh, the test, you can't necessarily, with the test that I'm aware of, correlate that, oh, if you're really active to this food, then by default, it will mean you are reactive to X, Y, and Z. Mm. You can really only take what comes up on the food uh, sensitivity test, work with that, and then remember we don't always just look at the test result being gospel. We also have to take on what the mother tells us about how the child also reacts to or she feels that the child may also be reacting to X, Y, and Z. Mm. Um, and I usually, you know, mums are pretty intuitive with their kids um, because we watch them like hawks. So I think that, um, you know, you have to take that into the into the story as well. So if corn doesn't come up on the test result, it may not be a direct um, reactivity to the corn, but that's not to say that there may be some other issue with that food or that it's in something, yeah. um, you know, I find even that I have a bit of sensitivity to, to wheat. And even if I um, eat some of the wheat-free, gluten-free breads, I still have trouble. I still get similar um, symptoms. And it then becomes down to well, what else is in these food stuff. Yeah. So am I reacting to the wheat anymore or is it something else in the food stuff? And yeah. And I think that's, you know, that brings up a whole other issue of 
if your kid's eating processed packaged foods, what else is in it? And even then, if you're saying, no, no, I make my food from scratch, yep, still where's the quality of that? And, you know, we've got pesticides and environmental toxins, yada, yada, yada. Mm, So mm. it does become a very difficult and I don't believe we can be absolute about um, all these results we get. We have to just add it into the the, the melting pot of what we're what we're seeing with the case, what our knowledge that we have, then the results from the test, and then we can devise a treatment plan. Yeah, as a starting point. But I, th- I think that's the the salient point you make it is the pathology test that we request. Obviously, you, if you're looking at kids, it's a tricky area because you want it to be as non as non invasive as possible. But it's got to be also relevant. That might change the course of the treatment. Otherwise, why bother? If you're going to do the same treatment, who cares? Um, Oh, absolutely. Yeah. What interests me about these things, though, is that, you know, you might think, okay, so it's a gut-related symptom, so therefore you're going to do gut-related type tests, um, even if that's, let's say it's looking at food allergies. Um, And yet speaking with Nicole Bilsma, about uh, toxic building syndrome and all of the moulds and things that go that that people can react to, I mean, it's just opening up a whole new can of worms for me. The, it's like, where oh. do you think the cause is coming from? And I, I guess the second oh. part of that is how will it change the treatment plan? Well, you have to start somewhere, and you know, and I'm totally into sick buildings and mouldy places and all of that sort of stuff, but. I guess generally that may not be the first place we go. We would look, um, well, I personally would always look internally first Mm. or physically first. Then, of course, we have a whole lot of emotional and mental issues as well. Okay, we have to remember that kids who cannot explain how they're feeling emotionally perhaps will manifest a sore tummy or, you know, I'm sick, mummy. I mean, those with children have all probably had a kitty that doesn't want to go to school, so they feign a sore tummy, or perhaps we have done that ourselves when we were child children. Um, I probably did that. Yeah. Um, so all those issues come into it as well. And but I, I think, as you say, if you're just going to treat everyone the same way as they present, go for it. But sometimes either you as the practitioner or the mother of the patient, because I'm still talking about children under the age of 18. Yep. Um, They're going to want something. Remember that our patients and their mothers are very Google-friendly nowadays. They've usually looked up things or they have some idea, um, or I'm finding, that they'll have more understanding if you say, well, we have to look at the gut or perhaps we can look at some food issues. Um, though I find often it's the mother that will say, I think they've got food allergies, can yeah. we look at that? Yeah. And in this instance, I would say, yes, you can, but perhaps we should look at their gut function first because that is an issue where even if they do have a food sensitivity, I'm still going to want to work on their gut mm. and how their gut deals with that. So I would still you know, come down that line anyway. And, and I guess th- my other sort of concern with kids is um, if people are going to put 
the child on an exclusion diet. It's got to be somebody who's suitably trained in doing exclusion diets because we're talking about a child that's developing and they need, you know, they require those nutrients. So it's got to be somebody who's safe about it. My other concern is people who go, so therefore you're sensitive to that food and you can't have it all the time. And I don't necessarily subscribe to that. In that, if we're talking naturopathic axioms here about the gut being the seat of all health and the cause of all the root, root of all disease sort of thing, shouldn't we be concentrating on healing the gut so that we can handle those foods, um, at least oh, to some yeah. extent? Um, and there's all, lastly, there's that concept of, uh, what do they call it, um, antigenic ambivalence, where even with a culprit food, you expose them to a small amount you know, every few days just to make sure that they don't lose that knowledge of the food and therefore become totally sensitive. And well, another thing to consider is also that um, biodiversity oh, absolutely. Of, of the gut microbiome. So when you exclude, and I had a little bug there about this too, Andrew, when you exclude so many foods, you are therefore not giving your bugs, your good bugs, yeah. um, a- enough food to um, thrive and then, and I have found this in many cases where people have been so restrictive, adults as well, so restrictive that when they inter- reintroduce foods, they're hyper-reactive. Mm. And, and some of that reason will be because the microbiome is not there to deal with it. Yeah. You know, oh. They've... They haven't got enough animals in the farm. Totally agree. In, indeed, there's some very interesting research, seeing as we're talking a lot on food allergies. Um, I think it's Mimi Tang um, in yeah. Melbourne. Is it Monash? Um, doing research with immunotherapy, treating, and I'm going to say that strong word, curing peanut allergy. Now, now that's we're talking anaphylaxis. And... Oh. and She's done two trials. One was with the immunotherapy giving, I think it was one two hundredth of a peanut. Um, This is obviously in a very controlled, safe medical environment where if something goes wrong, there's adrenaline and and rescue therapy on hand. So do not do this at home. But um, (laughs) uh, yeah, Uh, but very interesting research where they were challenging with a very small amount of the offending food. And we're talking about an immunologically active food creating an IgE response. And they were getting these kids not reacting to peanuts. Now, she's done a second trial with a lactoramnosis. Forgive me, I can't remember the code. It's a Chinese supplier. Um, And the thing that I need to know now that I haven't looked into is, is there a difference between the immunotherapy, small amount of peanut alone, or the immunotherapy plus the probiotic? I want to see if there's a a big difference Mm. there. Yeah. Yeah. But it ties in with what you're saying. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's fascinating and um, sounds a little bit homeopathic too, Minnie. Um, <laughs> but uh, I think it's fascinating that we have this real kind of, oh, you know, um, gluten is bad or, you know, something is bad. And you and the other thing that I don't like is when people say, oh, and you can never have that. Yeah. <laughs> what is with this never have that? Um, Celiac pain. Okay, I... Yeah, I pre- appreciate IgE and anaphylaxis if you're not in mini tang room, but otherwise, um, you know, this and you can never have it again. It's, that's not correct. That's not what these tests are about. No. They're about, I, I say it's for the now. For the now, we're looking at what is adding fuel to the fire 
let's get that out of the equation while I put the fire out uh, and then, you know, move on from there because mm. I don't want to take things off people forever. I mean, especially with some of the tests where we test coffee. Imagine taking coffee <laughs> off someone for life. No, I cannot. <laughs> I can- no, I cannot. <laughs> <laughs> you, you would not have a, you know, there wouldn't be much word of mouth referral, would there? <laughs> <That's right. laughs> so uh, I guess the next stage is, you know, when would you refer a child for blood tests that might be more suitable to look at blood tests? I'm, I, I guess the immediate, immediate one would be something like, you know, frank anemia, but you'd always be looking into the cause mm. there. What that, other that's sort of exactly tests? exactly the first one I thought was, was you know, iron. Mm. If we're really serious about that, you need a blood, you know, iron studies. We're not going to do hair or we're not going to do urine mm. um, metals test. Um, and generally, you know, we don't like to traumatise kids with blood tests um, if it can be helped. But, of course, if you definitely need to get a blood test, you need to. And, um, I mean, heavens, on birth, they're pricked in the heel. Um, screaming insurers, but we make sure they're um, it's it's PKU, I think it is. They're yeah. checking for that, aren't yeah. they? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Phenylketonuria. I mean, so therefore, babies can have a blood test, even if they do screen the clinic down. Um, but you'd also, I would also recommend that you ring the pathology collection centre, as in the headquarters, the help desk, and ask them if they can um, give you an idea of one of the centres that has got good feedback for doing kids yeah, because there is a skill uh, with taking blood and um, some um, collectors are better than others. Um, and I've got to tell you this, I was chatting to some um, prackies and I had one practitioner, Genevieve, who told me that she had a child patient whose mother used to blindfold the kid and tell the kid that his favourite superhero was doing special tests on him. <laughs> what a cracker. <laughs> so I guess whatever bribery it might take um, to get the blood, but I thought that was quite cute. Yeah. Hey, I, um, I, I just wanted to backtrack a, t- a tick. Sorry, Beth. It's just that I, mm. as soon as we said PKU, I went, hang on, there's, that's not the only test. So I just wanted to get this correct and uh, and make sure that our listeners were aware of it. Do you, uh, do you mind if I just interject and let people know what the tests are? for the skin of prick course. with babies. So it's PKU, phenylketonuria, and then you've got cystic fibrosis, um, then primary congenital hypothyroidism, amino acid disorders, organic acid disorders, fatty acid metabolism disorders, and then you know, there's biotinidase deficiency, congenital adrenal hyperplasia, galactosemia, and hemoglobinopathies. So there you go. It's not. It's it's a lot more than what I thought. Because I just twigged and I thought, hang oh. on. I thought CF was in there as well, and um, and uh, glucose six dehydrogenase deficiency. Um, wow. Yeah. Okay. It's got to be fancier than when I was born. Then, uh, well, I just remember. I just remember. No, they were looking at six GDP or something. Um, six, yeah, G six PD. G six PD. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Um, I just had this memory. I just wanted to make sure our listeners were aware that it's not just um, PKU they look at. They actually screen for quite a number of these um, metabolic disorders, genetic type things. Oh, that's, well, I didn't know that there was that extent as well, so that's good. Um, and just talking about uh, heel pricks, the other way that some tests can be done on kitties is a finger prick using a, you know, a, a lancet, a lancet yep. where they just um, prick the finger yep. so it doesn't have to be a blood draw out of the arm too. Now, 
<clears throat> there is only some tests. So you yeah. can do things like vitamin D. You can do um, IgG and A with that way. Um, you can do cholesterol, though. I don't know why you'd be doing that on a child. Uh, you can do hormones, including the thyroid with a finger prick, um, and even PSA. But again, please don't do that on your children. Yeah. Just yet. <laughs> no. Mm. Um, yeah. yeah, I mean, there's an interesting thing. I, I, I have a very dim memory of uh, that they're looking at screening younger and younger children for hypercholesterolemia. Um, oh. Yeah, they, because they're having to welcome to the Western world. Um but I can't remember what about the test, whether it's just a standard cholesterol test or whatever. Right. Just a yeah. huge issue, insulin resistance and, you know, hypercholesterolemia, lipidemias. How frightening. Yeah. It's really quite disturbing. Yep. But another thing I wanted to mention was, I mean, because I know you're asking about blood tests. So obviously when they are warranted, um, they need to be done. But there are tests you know, that are non-invasive, mm. certainly, that we can do. Um, obviously, stool testing, uh, which is easier because if you've got a kid that you can get a poo out of or even with smaller children, you can get something out of a nappy. Mm. Uh, and, of course, this can be very helpful to determine any sort of dysbiotic gut situation. You know, we can look at the parasite, um, bacteriology. Uh, we can look at the yeast. Um, that can be in that, as well as very me uh, various metabolic markers. Um, right. So you can look at your butyrates and your pHs and um, gotcha. uh, you know, and um, enzymes, the pancreatic elastase, yeah. things like that. Obviously, you can do um, intestinal permeability, which is a urine test. Too. And is that is that relevant for kids? I wouldn't particularly think so, but. And not in really tiny, small ones, but again, in older ones that do have um, maybe a poor genetic um, tendency or um, perhaps in like the um, autism spectrum sort of disorders yeah. where you may look at something like that. But you do have to remember, because there are paediatric um, kits for those tests, um, but you do remember that you are giving the kid lactulose and mannitol, so you have to be prepared of the aftermath, because <laughs> um, it can make very loose stools, yes. uh, mums. So, uh, but you know, it, it 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 is possible to do. Mm. But I probably, you know, there's probably an age bracket. I probably wouldn't do it under five. I think the kid needs to be old enough. You can explain to them how they may feel or what might happen after they've taken this yucky medicine. Yeah. You know, too. Um, and then urine, um, you can do lots of things, really, for testing. Uh, you know, you can do good old cryptopyrroles in the urine. Uh, you can look at amino acids, organic acids. So you can look at citric acid cycles, fatty acid cycles, uh, vitamin cofactors, uh, which is handy. You can do the methylmalonic acid. Ah, yes. Uh, which is good for the B12 deficiency. Yep. Um, is handy. You could look at neurotransmitter metabolite, um, especially if you've got you know behavioural issues with the kiddies. Mm. Uh, wouldn't be my first port of call, but it, it is possible to do. Yeah, but it, it, I mean, it really interests me these these meta metabolic byproducts of neurotransmitters, and they're sort of mm -hmm. you know dissed by the the orthodox medical community. But I say, well, what else you got? 
you know, you've got a you've got a a fifty percent chance of whether a psyche. Forgive me, I better get my wording right. Um, uh, a psychiatric medicine, let's say an antidepressant, um, is going to work or not. So it's like, well, what else have you got? Yeah, well, if you're worried about giving a kid a blood test, I would be majorly concerned about giving them a lumbar puncher to. Um, you know, measure <laughs> well, they your, your true neurotransmitter. Yeah, but well, I just think it's crazy that it's not at least entreated with some sort of um, curiosity and just saying, you know, we should look at this. We should see what what relevance this has rather than just, oh, no, it doesn't work. <laughs> just, yeah, and let's find them on Ritalin. That'll fix everything. Well, I just think um, it's really interesting that orthodox medicine was poo-pooing 10 years ago. It was just pooing, you know, calprotected and things like that, and now they're mm-hmm. looking at it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, you know, it comes around eventually. Mm. Um, uh, the other thing that can be handy with the urine is um, porphyrin testing. Right. So for you know, so for heavy metals, and again, this this may be relevant more again in that um, learning or behavioural disorder sort of spectrum. Yeah. Um, you can use hair, you know, hair testing. Of course. Um, um, and then as I oh, and you can use um. Buckle swabs too. So, so for the um, some of the genetic testing, you can use buckle swabs or just saliva. Right. So, um, and generally, if you turn it into a game with a child, I mean, getting a urine test off a boy child is quite easy. Make it a game. Mm. Very easy to do. Um, and. Most boys would also like to spit if you ask them to. So that can be quite handy. Um, oh, and the other thing I thought about is you can get fatty acids. You know how you mentioned fatty acids with ah, the heel prick? Yeah. We can also do that in the finger prick for kitties, which, right. again, can be very helpful, especially if they're not eating well, as in they're eating a lot of junky processed food, yeah. or they're just not eating, you know, much variety. Mm. Indeed, I, I see that as a, having good facility with things like behavioural disorders as well. Mm, absolutely. Um, what, about, what about CoQ10? CoQ10 is one of those, it's a bit like vitamin C and glutathione. Mm. Yes, you can measure them, but they are quite transient. So it, it's very now. Right. It's what you see now and then it's different. Right. It's now and it's different. Um, in the blood, in the blood that is. So mm. in organic acid testing... From the metabolites, you can get a suggestion that perhaps CoQ10 is an issue yep. because of the level of particular metabolites that are coming through. Right. Mm. Right. So that's probably how I'd preferentially measure that than in the blood. Yep. And um, can I ask in your experience as well, when you've seen kids, obviously these are, are more likely to be the kids with a behavioural disorder um, or a gut disorder. Um, but looking, uh, I'm thinking about behavioural type disorders. Do you find that there's this an increase in the results showing um, Clostridiae in the stools? Um, Do you see that? Well, only only if uh, you've got to remember in some tests, Clostridia can only be measured in loose stool, and it is not a um, a, a usual. Uh, analyte in the test. It has to be specifically asked for. Gotcha. So I would say, as a rule, nobody asks for it. I'm often telling, 
a lot of practitioners, if they say, oh, blah, blah, and the kid has diarrhea, I'll go add a clostridia in there, request clostridia, because that can be an, you know, an issue. Mm. But the thing is it's not regularly or routinely looked for. Um, interesting about clostridia too was um, I heard somewhere recently that they're also putting that down for a possible Parkinson's. Wow. Yeah. Trigger. Cause for Parkinson's, Trigger, yeah. which is a, a fascinating, yeah. I, I think it's really yeah. interesting, but, but you know, again, there's this, is it good or is it bad? It's, there's a member of the... The, of the Clostridiaceae, is that the mm, the mm-hmm. phyla, where the these I, I harp on about this, I know the segmented filamentous bacteria SFBs, they're a member of the Clostridia family, but what they do is they prime the young immune system in the in the infant, um, as long as you've got good guys to keep it in check, keep mm-hmm. them in check. They prime for a good immune response, but if you've got uh, an aberrant immune response from, you know, lowered probiotic or commensal bacteria, or an imbalanced commensal bacteria, um, and you've got the genetic predisposition, then you can prime for TH17 and autoimmune disease. It was wonderful, really, really interesting work to me. Um, with um, Dan Littman and Ivalio Ivanov. They're the two heroes of mine, if you like. But there's a, there's a, a whole host of others. But I just think You're it's really interesting. I know. I, but I Your just think... heroes are microbiologists. Yeah, I know. But I just think it's... Superman? <laughs> I just think it's really interesting that, you know, we tag something as good or bad. And it's like, well, yeah, hang on. We have to remember that we do have clostridia. We need clostridia. Yeah. Like we need some of the E. coli. Yeah. Oh, that's right. You know? Yeah. 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 So Miss- they're very, I mean, E. coli is one of the most prevalent bugs we have in our gut. It's just, um, it's a bit like soccer fans. You know, a handful of soccer fans are okay, full of stadium of them, and then, then it gets a bit unruly. Mm, mm. So um, it's, and that's what I find about some of the poo tests is people are going, this hell for leather is, I found this bug, kill it. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like, no. How about we can all live harmoniously um, in the melting pot that is our gut and just balance. rebalancing balance. or just keeping everybody happy? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's why I've got to say I've, I've loved doing these podcasts with um, Helen Patteron and uh, Alessandra Edwards. Awesome, awesome practitioners um, getting so much useful information about how to rebalance the gut. Mm. Beautiful, beautiful stuff. Yeah. So what other things? Um Deficiencies, vitamin deficiencies, we've touched on it. Are they commonly used or is that more of a standard medical test that people would talk it's with their doctor It's probably more a standard, yeah, standard medical test when you're looking at your iron and B12. You know, these, so mm. B12 yep. would be, you know, I mean, yes, we can do the methylmalonic acid in the urine, um, but as we said, we can't do iron. Um, or, or D you can do as a finger prick. Um, now, this is B, very interesting. Mm. Bees are very difficult, again, to measure in the blood uh, because they're so water-soluble and transient. Mm. Um, the Again, in an organic acids profile, you can get some indication of perhaps B vitamins. Um, but generally, uh, yeah, I would think the main vitamins I'm thinking of is D, B12 and iron. Mm is that you would look at. Mm. And then generally probably a practitioner would maybe garner from going through the diet of the kitty 
um, what they may or may not be deficient in or, you know, have insufficiency. So I must say when I was um, getting ready to have a chat to you, I thought, oh, kids like fries. I actually Googled um, the nutritional value of fries. Yeah. And um, who knew? They've actually got fibre and vitamin C. Um, (laughs) Bound up in a whole gunk of fat. (laughs) Exactly. But, you know, I thought, oh, well, at least they have something well how can all these kids survive (laughs) oh yeah there must be there must be something in it but um yeah i would say that's not you i would say and i'm speaking on on behalf of practitioners that i would think they would garner from the diet initially Mm. um and then probably look at other things rather than go straight to a deficiency because generally and I'm making a major generalisation when I say generally. I, I, I don't think we see a lot of frank deficiencies nowadays. Um, right. Except for vitamin because D. Because as I said, if there's – except for vitamin D. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and that's, you know, interesting, um, especially in a country like Australia where kids – well, I was going to say when I was a kid, we were out in the sun all day, every day. But that's when you were so a kid. So maybe – that's, you didn't that's have a very, PlayStation, days. Xbox, whatever it is. That's right. We had Atari. Yeah. And, um, but, yeah, and I guess now the kids are outside as well. And so that is something, is, is it starting that young, the whole vitamin D issue? And, and then uh, we're seeing. Yeah, and I've got to say, outside at the right time, getting sun on their skin. Um, so and for a, for a very short amount of time. So the the whole problem is the midday's bad, sun's bad. You know the sun's evil. It was just placed there big to burn us. <laughs> like it was just it's this nonsensical thing. I don't think we evolved from a an amphibian to this without being exposed to the sun. But I think the issue is that. W- whatever sun exposure we do say is good isn't the wrong time where it can't make vitamin D. You know, rather than yeah, and we're covered up. The kids have to wear hats, and they're not allowed to go outside and play unless they've got their hat on. That's right. Or they at at, at uh, childcare, at creche, and places like that. Oh, primary they school. Are, no hat, no play. They're la- Yeah, but even at creche, um, you know, when my daughter was at creche, which was a long time ago. Hmm. They were putting on sunscreen and hats all the way back there, so the kids, even when they were outside, they weren't really seeing the sun. Yeah. And, and I guess the, the, the safety issue there is, well, what if you don't? You know, you've got one person supervising 30 children or something, and so somebody's going to get horribly burnt, you know. Mm. Um, yeah, well, that, that, it swings and roundabouts of everything, isn't it? Uh, you know, you overdo one thing or you underdo yeah, something. Yeah, a and short I, amount. And I think that's... Short amount of direct okay. sunlight, yeah, is great. Yeah, um, and talking about overdoing things, is there is something that I want to you know, make mention of is again with some of these tests is overdoing tests or doing them just because it sounds like a good idea. Oh, I heard there's this new test. Let's do it. Um, Some things are not recommended for children. Mm. And the first thing I'm talking about overdoing things would be an iodine loading test. Right. Um, Because you're dumping 50 milligrams of iodine in the kid's gut. So... Milligrams? Milligrams? Micrograms. Milligrams. MG. What? So I would not be doing this on children. I wouldn't be doing that at all. 50 milligrams? No. 50 milligrams, yep. So I'm quite, you know, I I would urge 
um, practitioners to not utilize this in children. You can just do a spot iodine. That will give you, you know, oh. enough information to to go on. Mm. <laughs> are, you, Sorry. are you okay? I know. No, I'm, I'm not okay. Oh, my God, I've, I've made you speechless. The oh. other one I want to mention is a, is a liver detoxification profile that includes caffeine, paracetamol, and aspirin tablets. Again, um, I would urge yeah, no. people not to do that on children. Well, no, Thanks very much. it's not appropriate under 12, yeah. No, and the other thing is when people say, oh, well, get you know, do the test and just take half the dose. Uh, mm. No, you've just buggered up the test mm. uh, because the test is working off a particular amount of product to, to you know, to do its measurements. No, so, that's that's just inappropriate in kids under twelve because of race syndrome. So, you you, you don't oh, want to you don't want to go there for medico legal reasons. Well, exactly. So both of those tests. Yeah. I'm doing a complete bepal no deal. Yeah. Um, so, and as I said earlier, intestinal permeability. I wouldn't be recommending in kids under five. Mm-hmm. And then the other thing is um, IgGs, IgAs. Um, again, not under six months because the kid has to be exposed to the foods that you're testing them against. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, I've had practice with a two-month-old saying, can I test for that? I'm going, mm, no, I'd be testing the mother. If the mother's breastfeeding, measure the mother <laughs> um, because she's feeding the kid. So... Um, and also, if a, a child, God forbid, is on immunosuppressive drugs, you can't do those sorts of tests. Yeah, because of suppressing the immune system. So, I think sometimes we just have to, you know, have a little bit of consideration about, like you said in the beginning of the show, why are you doing it? Is it going to change your therapy? And is it the best way to do it in a child? Mm. And in I, a child. You know what? I, I'm also sort of lending myself, just talking about, thinking about the test that you mentioned, you know, talking about the CDSA is going to be quite a commonly used one. A vitamin D mm. one is a fingerprint. I, I get that. That's a bit of a uh, an exemption from what I'm thinking about. But with regards mm-hmm. to CDSA uh, and, you know, testing the fecal matter, it's something that comes out of the child naturally without you having to do anything. You just catch it. And test it That's rather it. than going into the child or giving something to the child to make something happen. And I just think yes. this sort of test is, I think those sort of tests have got the greatest facility and certainly the greatest safety because they're just coming out of the child. You're just testing it. Yeah. We mm. or poo. We mm. or poo is pretty, mm. you know, easy. You and just got to run around and chase them to catch them. Yeah. Um, and, and saying that, I would also encourage practitioners to greatly encourage the parent to read the instructions for the test, to do it properly because, um, you know, it, it is a bit of a trick sometimes to catch the wee and poo yeah. off kids. And so if you do it incorrectly and you have to do it again, it's, That's you know, a waste of a, a test. Pain. Yeah. Yeah. And um, so it's, it's relevant because some of these tests, um, you know, you need to avoid particular supplements or food stuff before you do them because it will confound the test results. So uh, it's like, please, please, please get your patients to read the instructions um, to get the best benefit. Because some of these tests, you know, cost a pretty penny. Mm. And um, 
and that's all well and good, but let's make sure we're getting our bang for our buck. Yeah, you know? that's exactly right. Mm. Beth, thank mm. you so much for taking us through. I've got to say, we've ended up with more conundra than answers, but but, <laughs> uh, but you've given us some really good salient points to think about when when thinking about the the usefulness of doing any sort of pathological tests in children, but certainly um, the functional tests. So thanks for taking our listeners through that today. I really appreciate it. My absolute pleasure, as always. This is FX Medicine, and I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook. The 5th Bioceuticals Research Symposium will be held from the 21st to the 23rd of April 2017 in Sydney. This promises to be another sellout event. For more information, including registration, go to the Education tab at bioceuticals.com.au.